There's a common trope in American history that the Cold War was a straightforward conflict between the United States and the Soviet Union. That for half a century, this rivalry represented a binary. Freedom versus tyranny. First world versus second world. Good versus evil. And eventually, the United States triumphed over the Soviet Union. That's how on textbook producer Anya Dua learned it too. I had sort of learned that it was a battle between the United States and the USSR, which was really representative of the battle between capitalism versus communism, and that the Soviet Union was trying to make all the other countries communist. And it was sort of an idea like they started it, you know, and we just responded. And I think it's much more nuanced than that. Anya read the book, The Global Cold War, which tells the story from a much broader perspective. It's written by Dr. Odd Arna Westad, who grew up in Norway during the Cold War. Dr. Westad thinks that imagining the Cold War as a binary conflict between the US and Soviet Union is incomplete. They may have been the main actors, but they fought each other using tactics like trade embargoes and proxy wars, which affected the entire world. Most other countries in the world have been directly impacted by what happened in the Cold War, and they wouldn't be the same had the Cold War not happened, had it gone a different way. So I I would say in that sense, everyone is directly or indirectly affected by the Cold War. In this episode of Untextbooked, Anya interviews Dr. Westad about how shockwaves from the Cold War continue to reverberate around the world decades after it ended. That's coming up after the break. I'm Gabe Hostin, and you're listening to Untextbook. Untextbooked. So just to start off, I wanted to ask if you could explain how the Cold War has led to the situation we have in Afghanistan today. In order to understand the more fundamental aspects of the Cold War, you have to globalize the issue. You have to look at the consequences that this had with regard to other countries, uh, even outside of Europe, so in Latin America and Africa. Afghanistan is is a really good example of this because much of what led to this very narrow, very authoritarian interpretation of Islam that you now find among Taliban leaders came out of that time period. So the most important thing to, to understand that is that Afghanistan has spent more than a generation at war. The starting point was very much back in the 1960s and 70s, when a lot of younger people in Afghanistan, particularly those who lived in the capital in Kabul, people who came from a relatively you know, privileged background by Afghan standards, felt that the country wasn't developed fast enough towards modernization and that they needed to move on that much more quickly than what had been the case in the past. And these people joined various political groups. One of them, a very popular one, was, if not communist, at least very strongly influenced by by communism and became the party that then took power through a military coup in, in 1978. And when that group, now in power, started having significant trouble with, I think, the vast majority of Afghans who simply didn't want to be ruled by a group of relatively young people from the capital who had political aims that they felt were in conflict with the religion or or with the traditions, then the Soviets had to come in and support that government. The fact that this country, young people in the country, haven't really known peace, that's, of course, a critical 
part of why the country has ended up in the predicament that it's it's in today. The attraction that very authoritarian interpretations of political Islam is because of all the instability that they have known in the past. The kind of Islam that at least mainstream that was practiced in Afghanistan before the Soviet invasion was miles away from this very narrow-minded, very authoritarian uh, version of, of political Islam that is now held up by the Taliban. It was a very inclusive, very tolerant, deeply culturally rooted uh, form of Islam uh, that had, of course, existed for centuries in that country. You know, when you have institutions, when you have parties and, and groups that provide the kind of services that people are looking for, people will will accept that, or, or they will even actively support it to a degree that is very hard for us who haven't lived under those kinds of circumstances to actually understand. I was just reading some interviews with people living in the rural areas of Afghanistan today, who basically said, you know, what the Taliban have done is at least they have brought peace, right? And that becomes the problem. When a country is torn apart by war, uh, it's very easy to accept any kind of peace, any kind of order and stability over that chaos. So I think that has given the Taliban the chance to build up their support, build up their adherence in Afghanistan, leading to the kind of result that we see now. And to bring it more to what's happening right now, how is that you know, history, that destabilization impacted recent U.S. intervention in Afghanistan? Well, I think the problem for the United States then became whether in Afghanistan, whether the aim of the U.S. operation was to capture bin Laden and the leadership of, of al-Qaeda, who had you know, perpetrated terrible acts of, of terror in the United States and, and elsewhere, or whether it was also to overthrow the then, you know, Taliban Afghan government and build a new kind of state and society in Afghanistan. And therefore, there was a significant aspect of what, you know, some people call mission creep, that it became increasingly about defending the, the government in Afghanistan that had been put in place uh, by the United States to begin with and, and, and its allies against the opposition, which was not only the Taliban, but but mainly the Taliban. And that's the, that's the main reason for me why it became the forever war, because winning that kind of war without a much broader American military effort would have been impossible, simply because the, the Taliban had, as I explained earlier, a significant popularity among, among many Afghans. So that, I think, became the problem. Uh, therefore, this became an endless war. The Taliban couldn't defeat the United States. But the United States couldn't defeat the Taliban either. So, you know, and in the end, I think what happened was that this country, the United States, ran out of political patience with the project and simply decided to withdraw. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure a lot of it's very emotion driven, right? In the aftermath of 9-11, how could the U.S. not strike back? I think, I think that's a discussion that is really worth having. I mean, for you, your generation is how does one handle situations like that. I mean, terrorist attacks, on even terrorist attacks on American soil, because unfortunately, I'm pretty sure that in some form or another, uh, that's going to happen again. And one of the things that we sort of felt coming out of the Cold War was that 
Both Russia and the United States had learned a few lessons about the futility of some of these foreign interventions. I mean, the, the, the Russians in Afghanistan, uh, the United States in, in, in Vietnam and, and elsewhere. And then when you get into the 2000s, you know, you get past um, 9-11 and the decision to invade Iraq, it seems like all of those lessons of, of the Cold War about the futility of these particular projects seem to be gone. And there is almost an element of history repeating itself in this. So I'm not, you know, I'm no pacifist. I'm not uh, in favor of, of, of not attempting to, to capture and punish people who have perpetrated terrible deeds, whether in their own country or abroad. I'm all in favor of that. But it has to be done in a way that is conducive to that particular purpose. It would not entail the long-term invasion and occupation of the countries in, in which these organizations operated. Yeah, and so given this discussion about U.S. involvement in Afghanistan as influenced by 9-11 and as influenced by the Cold War, I think something that is a theme throughout this whole time period we've been discussing is U.S. nation building. Do you think that it's time to leave that policy behind? Yes. I mean, I think the concept of nation building is in many ways a, a very false concept because it assumes that the nation is something that can be built by outside forces in this case, but even by domestic forces. I mean, creating nations, cohesive units of people, at least up to a point, is something that takes a very long time. And it's very hard to make that happen by, you know, forcing people to do what you want them to do. And the Soviets experienced that in their sector. The, the Americans experienced it during the same time period. But, you know, it's, it's also been true going back in history. If you think about all of these various empires that have been, you know, taking over other countries and they've been saying, you know, we want to put in place political and social and economic forms of order in these countries then we then that we then expect would last you know after we withdraw or after decolonization or whatever you you call it and in reality you know these kinds of measures are rarely successful or if they are if they have a measure of success it goes in very different directions than what was first intended and so just like on a broader scale about the approach to U.S. foreign policy. A lot of U.S. textbooks talk about the mm. idea that the U.S. is destined to play a leadership role in the world. How do you think cultural ideas like that or others have shaped U.S. foreign policy in the last hundred years? I, I think that has really influenced the sort of overall direction. The United States in many ways was born uh, as an anti-colonial project against against Britain when it, when it won its, its independence. And it was put together of people who came from very many different backgrounds. Some, of course, came to this country against their own will, people who had been enslaved and brought to the United States. People came from such diverse backgrounds that you couldn't put this together in the kind of cultural uh, framework that would often happen with nations in, in Africa or in Europe. So you got this idea that the political institutions, especially, that had been built in the United States, that these would be valid and good, not just for this country, but for other countries as well, and for the world in general. And um, that, I think, has led, particularly in the 20th century, 
as American power grew, to a lot of, of US interventionism abroad. Uh, the idea that one has to set things right according to these American standards. You know, some of this has been very good in many ways because it has meant that the United States has been able to help other countries. It means that it meant, for instance, that you joined with other countries in 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 fighting Nazi Germany during the Second World War. So I'm, you know, I'm not arguing for some kind of American isolationism here, but I do think it is really important uh, when a country gets to be as powerful as the United States is today to think through some of these values and ideas and perhaps conclude sometimes that, you know forms of political organization or or laws and institutions that can work well in the United States do not necessarily work as well in in other countries. There is a quote from your book that I found really striking. You said that the tragedy of the Cold War was that two historical projects that were genuinely anti-colonial in their origins became part of a much older pattern of domination because of the intensity of their conflict. Hmm. Can you elaborate a little bit on that so I think both United States and the Soviet Union came out of that very Europe-centered colonial world that developed during the 19th century. So the idea that countries of a European background had a particular position and a particular responsibility with regard to the world as a whole is a kind of colonial idea, right? And I found that very striking with regard to the Cold War, that the idea held both by Russians and by Americans during that era, that they were somehow responsible for the rest of the world, meaning they had a duty to try to shape it in their image or in the image that they deemed to be best for the people involved. That was a really significant part of how the Cold War developed. And the line from that, going back to this idea that Europeans, people of European extraction, has a particular validity, you know, for the rest of the world, I think is a, a root cause for many of the troubles that we saw during the Cold War, but also to quite some extent after the Cold War. Yeah, and I think something that is sort of an issue with my generation on that topic is a lot of people have the idea that it's either, you know, the U.S. is evil and we have just been a force for pain across the world. And then there's the other perspective, which is, you know, we bring peace everywhere we go and we are the light. And I think that these two polar opposite views just show how a lot of Americans, you know, myself, my friends, we've been talking about this, are sort of struggling with what is our responsibility to the world in light of Afghanistan and just more in general. So what is the American responsibility towards the rest of the world? I think at this particular point, it, it consists of two things. I mean, one is to put one's own country in better order than what is the situation now. So, you know, the extreme inequality that you have within the United States, the political polarization, the difficulties with getting effective health care out to the poorest poorest Americans, the, the ongoing racial oppression that you find in different parts of the country, and, and, and the, the real difficulties with creating the kind of, you know, infrastructural improvements that are needed to lift the economy further. But 
It's also absolutely necessary to say that the United States, United States is still needed in the world. So, you know, the idea of the United States simply retrenching in a form that would mean that it would deal exclusively with its own problems is not a good recipe. It just has to be much, much better at figuring out where the United States can make a positive difference and where that will be difficult, if not impossible. So, you know, I think on a, on a whole range of issues, we need the United States to take the lead on, on issues, you know, to do with the recent pandemic, for instance, or climate change, with international trade. The United States has a role to play as a balancer in, in all of these in all of these questions. But doing it judiciously and based on, on understanding of what the United States is capable of doing, that's, I think, what we're really looking for now. Well, thank you so much for your time today and talking to us. Professor Odd Arna Westod is the author of The Global Cold War. Professor Westod, where can people find more of your work? The best way of actually looking some of this up is just to look at my, my uh, profile at the Yale University website to get an overview of some of the other things that I've been doing. Right now, I'm more interested in where we ended up in this conversation, the era of uh, uh, imperialism and colonialism and, and up to today. So that's the next topic. So when that book is <laughs> next we can year. Have <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. I hope you have okay, a nice my evening. Pleasure. Thank you. You too. Dr. Odd Arna Westad is a history professor at Yale University. Anya Dua is a high school senior in Florida. Our website is untextbook.org and we're on social media at untextbook. Our music is by Silas Bowen and Coleman Hamilton. Untextbook is edited by Bethany Denton and Jeff Emman. Fernanda Rain is our executive producer. Untextbook is a project of God History, an organization that believes in a world where all young people can advance civic well-being for themselves, society, and the planet. Thanks for listening. <laughs>